And we're live. Welcome to Don't Be Coy. I'm your host, Uncle Lou. And today I have the honor, pleasure, and the utmost appreciation to have with me today, Miss Samara Jinx Chang. Samara, thanks for being on the show. How are you doing this morning? I am lovely. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Can't complain. Uh, how's your previous week been? Any kind of takeaways? Um, it's It's been a very full week. Um, I've had a graduation for one of my siblings, um, a medical conference um, in San Diego. So there's been, there's been a lot of sky mouths this past week. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. Well, for the people at home, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I think... Um, the, the one-liner, um, which is a term we use in medicine to kind of summarize um, a patient, is I'm a physician, a pediatrician um, at Seattle Children's Hospital. Um, I'm a chief resident. Um, I'm also a oldest sister of 10, um, a daughter, granddaughter, um, and just, you know, a woman of faith. So that's kind of the one-liner. <laughs> All right. I appreciate that. So I do kind of really want to talk to you a little bit around um, your journey in medicine and like how that um, has come into fruition. So like, can you tell us a little bit around like your journey around um, how you first got interested in medicine and like how you came to be about a, a chief resident? Absolutely. Um, so I always say that if you want to understand me, um, all you have to understand is, is Barbara and Richard. Um, so Barbara, um, Dale Jinx, and Walter Richard Jinx were my grandparents. Um, my grandfather passed away. My grandmother is very much um, still here, still very feisty. Um, and they are really the reason that I'm here. And so I was born and raised um, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, Zone 4, um, Southwest Atlanta, for, for those that that means something to. Um, and so I you know, was born at Grady um, Hospital. And from the day that I was born, they took me to 2120 Highview Road. Um, which is, you know, like our family's home, um, which has come to take on a new meaning now that there's so much gentrification and we're all getting calls about it. But that's our home and it always will be. Um, and so that that is like those two people are, are really, I say they're, they're the reason I'm here. I think the larger village obviously played a role, but um, my grandmother was a school teacher in Atlanta Public Schools um, for over 25 years. And then my grandfather was a public health worker. Um, so he worked at the Center for um, disease control in Atlanta, um, as well as the Georgia Public Health Department. Um, so I really grew up around like just civil servants, um, people who had that in mind to serve both in their careers and then and also just in, in the family unit. Um, so we, on my mother's side, I have five siblings and on my father's side, I have four. Um, and at least for, you know, the first 10 years of my life, um, my grandparents were, you know, what we would call in medicine, kinship caregivers. Uh, we don't really use the word adoption in black families. We just say, oh, my grandmother took care of me. You know, mm -hmm. My grandfather took care of me. That's just kind of how we we function. Um, and it's not later. It's not so later that you sort of realize that that extended family unit that just covers you, you know, whether it's, you know, not just, you know, in terms of the, the house over your head, but, you know, spiritually praying for you, um, making sure that you have all of your needs met um, is, is, is unique um, in some ways, um, not so much in our community, I feel like half the people in my neighborhood were raised by their grandparents um, just because we grew up, you know, during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. Um, and so it it became normalized for me um, until probably I was about 13. Um, I got recruited to this um, preparatory school on the other side of town called the Westminster Schools. 
And um, that was a game changer um, just because I kind of felt like a stranger, like in my own city. Um, it was just completely different. Um, Atlanta has changed a lot over the years, but at least during my childhood, it was pretty segregated. Um, and so it was definitely a situation where, you know, I never really saw people that weren't black um, on a regular basis. I kind of joked that I saw them on TV. Um, and then, you know, in real life, it was just all black everything. You know, my mayor was black, teachers, you know, doctors, which is the the flip side of it. And I always had role models. I live right next to the AUC. So Morehouse, Spellman, Clark, Morris Brown, um, those were, were my world. Um, and my church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is, you know, Martin Luther King's home church. Um, so it was definitely one of those situations where I, I have I had on paper, you would look at the story and you would say, oh, you know, there's been so much overcoming. And in my world, like I had everything I ever needed um, because I would I never wanted for anything. Um, as a matter of fact, I joke that I grew up at the Morehouse School of Medicine because every summer I was the nerd in science camp. Um, <laughs> Basically, because they got tired of me doing little experiments around the house. Because uh, my great grandmother, I had lied once um, and told her I need, had to do an experiment. So I was like, I had moldy bread like in a jar, like <laughs> underneath her, in, underneath um, in the cabinet in, in her kitchen. And I was just trying to see what happened because I heard that, you know, things were mold if you, if you did that. Um, and then I had another jar where I had the, the, the um, jar open. And she was like, what does this project do? Come to find out, they were like, there was no project. She just wanted to experiment. And, and that would happen all the time. Like outside the Waffle House, I would have ice and like have salt on one piece of ice and another, you know, without it. Um, and they were just like, we need to get her in some type of program. And so the AUC, um, which is the largest consortium of historically black um, colleges and universities in the United States, um, it's, you know, it becomes this, you know, intellectual haven um, for like black intelligentsia and they had science camp. And so at the time it was called Ben Carson. They've since uh, renamed it. <laughs> uh, but the ben, Sarson, ben Carson Summer Science Academy was the beginning. And then we went to the Vivian Thomas um, Summer Research Program. And so, you know, that was my world. Um, and then, you know, at 13, one of those moms um, from that program, Miss Ivy, um, she, her daughter was in a program um, at Westminster. And so that that prep school um, was you know, completely foreign to me, um, but we put in an application. And, you know, every every step along the way, I've always had people looking out for me. You know, even at Morehouse School of Medicine, Dr. Allwood, who ran the program, he always just tells the story of how my grandmother walked in and he said, how much do you have to pay for this? And she said, I got a $5 bill in my pocket. And she was like, okay. And that $5 paid for 10 years of science camp. <laughs> Similarly, you know, that was that was one blessing that then at that program, I meet Miss Ivy, who, you know, had no had no reason to kind of, you know, go out of her way for me. But she also um, told everyone, she, you know, she needs to be in, in, a, in a school that can really, you know, take her to the next level. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, thriving. Like, I loved all my black teachers, you know, Dr. Harris, Miss um, uh, Tanya Starr. Like, I just had a lot of support. Um, and so it was for me, I, I didn't know the difference. I mean, my my eighth grade science teacher, we actually wrote in my grandmother's Cadillac um, to the state science fair together. And so it was just like a little adventure because my teachers were an extension of my family. Mm. Um, and then I get to Westminster and I say, and I always joke, I tell people one of the first things that I knew that this place was different was because people used to leave their backpacks everywhere. 
And I would be like, oh, you got, you left your backpack. You, you know, you stuff is going to get jacked. <laughs> and they were like, oh, people don't steal here. Like, it was just like a very different environment. There was no fights. People just left their stuff everywhere. I mean, this is a huge campus. Um, it, it's bigger than a lot of colleges, actually. Um, and this this school, you know, a lot of the 96 Olympics track and field equipment was, you know, there. Like, the Olympic teams, like, practiced in their pool. Um, so it was just like a land of plenty. Um, and there was, you know, there was a small black community, um, but it was, it was, it felt like I had been, you know, basically taken on a rocket ship to space. Um, and then to add, to add uh, another layer to it, um, the guy that beat me in the state science fair, um, he also got recruited there the same year. <laughs> um, I think we ended up winning together, but, um, I was like, Bill, really? He's here. Um, so yeah, most of the kids there were there for scholarships, you know, not, or not for scholarships, but most of the kids were there for um, athletics when they came in as a ninth grader, but I was just like the state science fair kid um, who had a really, you know, different story um, than most of the kids there. Um, and from the beginning, they made they didn't want me to take honors classes, and I was just they were I was like, oh no, I you know I'm a strong student, um, I really like science, but they you know they couldn't fathom that you know a public school kid, um, you know would be able to. And I was just like, I just won the state science fair. <laughs> like, what do you mean I can't take honors science classes? Um, and so we, you know, my grandmother wasn't, she wasn't playing that. Um, and so we ended up, you know, getting into the honors physics classes and, you know, it was a struggle um, just because a lot of these kids, you know, even though I've been at science camp every summer and all of those things, like my, and we just didn't have the resources. So I, I remember I took uh, geometry twice um, because I had placed out of it and there wasn't the resources to send me to the high school up the road um, as an eighth grader. So like, I mean, when you're in Atlanta public schools, you just do it again. Yeah. And so that was kind of the straw that um, broke the camel's back. And then I ended up going there. Um, and so from Westminster, I ended up getting a Gates scholarship. Um, and then that funded Georgetown where I went to undergrad. And that was that was a huge jump as well, because I was president of Black Student Alliance. I kind of came into my own um, at that point because I've been a little sheltered, I'll say, um, just having grown up with my grandparents. Um, and then, you know, there was also the added I forgot to mention. So my mother got clean around what age of 10 and so I had that new you know dynamic to work out um, as well um, and then I was just on my own and so I you know I had a little I had a little uh, growing pains first year because um, I, I went out as much as I possibly could because grandma wasn't watching anymore <laughs> um, and just you know let's just say it was it was a transition um, and then you know from there it was a matter of kind of deciding on you know majors and you know you would think that science would have been automatic um, but the other thing that that prep school did for me is they sent me to Europe for a year, um, which is, again, like none of my life has been, you know, a direct linear path. It's It's been very circuitous. And, you know, that year in Europe is actually why I ended up at Georgetown, because I, I joined the school for some foreign service. Um, I had studied Italian and, you know, uh, both like like Roman architecture and um, Greek. Um, I studied Latin, got back. And I was like, I want to travel the world because my world had opened up mm. so much, um, both just across town, you know, from Southwest Atlanta to, you know, Buckhead, where my prep school was, and then getting to go to Europe and learn a new language and have a radio show in Italy. Um, I was like, I want to do this for a profession. And so started it as a, in diplomacy school, effectively. Um, and then I, I ended up coming back right to where um, I had always knew I should have been, um, which was with science. Um, and so that 
happened, I think after, I think I had gone to Ethiopia for like a, a teaching job just over the summer trying to do my, you know, international affairs um, exploration. And I saw a lot of kids there that were malnourished. And so it was really hard. It's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs to say, oh, I'm going to focus on teaching you English when, you know, you ba- you can barely stay, you know, awake in my class because you haven't eaten. And so it's just, it was very um, eye-opening. And I mean, even going back to the U.S., I couldn't even go in a grocery store for a while um, just because it was so such a stark contrast. Um, and I, you know, decided probably after Ethiopia that I was going to go back to medical school. Um, and that meant, you know, getting a lot of courses in and ultimately applying to medical school. Everybody was very confused because um, I had worked for the government, you know, during college for a couple of years, um, expecting to do a, a civil service job. And they would say, well, how did you end up in medicine? And the answer was, well, you know, I, I trained to be a diplomat and I'm still going to be a diplomat just between patients and families and the medical system because um, all those skills are very, very transferable. Um, and I genuinely would go into the story a little bit less or a little bit more depending on who I was looking at in front of me um, during a med school interview. Um, And so, you know, Duke was where I went to medical school and then I did a master's at Harvard in public health. Um, So again, definitely not linear in any way, shape or form. And then the most probably, the biggest swing was probably Seattle um, because I matched out here um, after medical school and, you know, it was definitely like, it almost felt like going back to Europe. Um, I joke that I'm on study abroad because Atlanta and Seattle could not be more opposite in a lot of ways culturally, mm-hmm. um, but they've really embraced me in my career. And so I ended up being selected as a chief resident, um, which means if you don't watch a lot of Grey's Anatomy, um, that I do a lot of you know, teaching and schedules and administrative work um, for all of the new doctors um, that are training to be pediatricians. And I'm only one year removed um, from that three years of training. Um, but again, every step of the way, you know, I can think of all the people that have kind of punctuated key decisions and, and times in my life. Um, and I've always had people advocating on my behalf to the point where, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so I, you know, go out of my way to make sure that everybody has what they need. Cause I've been, I've been an eldest sibling, you know, my entire life. So I kind of feel like I'm the eldest sibling of, you know, 140 doctors in training. Um, and it, it's kind of come full circle from that, you know, kid who was doing little science projects that weren't actually projects uh, assigned by anyone um, to, you know, taking care of patients and families and a lot of kids that are in similar situations um, that I was in. And so it's just been it's just been a blessing, which um, is probably more detailed than you wanted. But it's it's hard to kind of sum up all of the, the various factors without kind of giving due, due credit to, to everyone along the way. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciate you sharing all that because one thing that really st- stuck out for me was like this this aspect in your life where, you know, you at a very young age were not necessarily plucked away from like your community, but like mo- removed from like your your comfort zone where you had your grandmother, your grandfather, you had like the support network with the the colleges in the area that kind of knew your family and moved to this kind of, uh, I'm assuming like, uh, like you said, it was like on the other side of town in Buckhead where everything was like stark different. Like you could, people just laid their backpack down and it was like, whoa, you know, this is okay. You can just leave your backpack here. Yeah, it's perfectly fine. 
but like from there it kind of created this kind of pattern where you were traveling to all of these different places like not only within that high school going to europe but then going to washington dc going to north carolina going to boston now being in um seattle like i'm curious around what those experiences were like for you and like um when you from the beginning had such a very strong network of a support system how did you go about making sure that that support system was still there or building new ones in the various places that you were at so it's, it's interesting you framed it that way um i don't know i mean i come from a generation of storytellers so it's it's hard for me not to to, to make friends no matter where i go mm. um i my aunt who is in California, um, is probably the closest relative to me, like both physically and just in terms of our dynamic. Cause I talked to her every other day. She always says, you know, you don't know a stranger. And I was like, I surely don't. And neither do you, where did I get it from? <laughs> um, because that's just kind of how we move in the world. Um, and, I, and a lot of that had to do with Westminster and, and learning how to code switch, you know, very young, um, at the age of 13. And then you know, I, I, I don't think that's a unique experience for, for, you know, black people, especially folks that are going, you know, pursuing higher education. Um, you know, you learn how to navigate uncomfortable spaces until they become comfortable. Yeah. Um, which is why, you know, that word resilience, it kind of is a, it's, it has like a double edged sword now um, because you can, you know, people like black people are resilient because they have to be not because they want to be um, necessarily. And I think that necessity um, kind of just breeds like the type of personality that says like, I'm going to be able to, you know, hustle my way through just about anything. Uh, and so I, I, I think of that being one aspect of it. Like they always told me that, you know, you're never going to be in an environment where, you know, God and your family are not at your back. Mm. Like, even if they're not physically with you, um, Italy also reinforced that. Cause I, I literally, I didn't speak the language and, you know, by the end of it, like the family, that I stayed with, um, the Vanessa family, like they, you know, they made me one of theirs too. Um, and I still, all of my, you know, play, uh, God children are there and we still go back to visit. Um, so I think that, that comes from, again, that comes from Barbara and Richard, like they can navigate just about any situation. Um, and I, I think that is a skill, um, that's very common, like in our community, if you're going to make it, um, because you can't always be comfortable um, because the world wasn't designed for us. Um, this country wasn't built for us. And so I I, th- I kind of take that mentality into to most situations and, and nobody else really would look at me and even tell. The other aspect of the story I haven't mentioned is that I'm actually mixed race. Um, my father's Pakistani, um, but it's, you know, the the story of, of how that happened. That would need a, a whole nother bo- a podcast. We don't, we don't have time to go into all that, <laughs> but... <laughs> It's how I I do I do credit the way that I moved through the world to you know my my village so to speak, um, and every step along the way that village has expanded, um, and we stay in you know pretty constant communication. So, you know my everybody at my chief's office knows what's going on in my family because it is very much still a part of of who I am um, on a day to day basis. Yeah, you know. One thing that you got me thinking about there is like when you spoke about resilience and code switching, like the tenacity of it all. And like, you know, by you being like a a trained physician and going through your residency and then being a chief resident, like you have this kind of resilience to the point of you know how to 
endure the pressures of, you know, going through your step exams, going through your clinicals, going through all these different things that, you know, put a lot of pressure under you so that, as my father would say, it takes um, to cook meat, you need that hot fire. And so your water needs to boil. And so like, you know, the um, I guess you could say the right temperatures for yourself to like um, get yourself to cook that meat and like start boiling over that water, but also know whenever to take the pot off so that it can simmer down and like all those different kind of things. But like, what's really interesting to me is like, um, and I'm kind of curious about this is like, how do you as an individual know whenever like you're putting too much pressure on yourself from doing all the code switching for the X amount of years, the resilience that it took for not only medical school, but also moving to these various different locations because like similar to you, like I'm familiar with like the DC area, the uh, Northeast, the Pacific Northwest, and like they're all different areas than it is the Southeast, especially like Atlanta. So like how as an individual do you get back to your centering so that you can go into every single day with your best foot forward. There's a couple of ways to think about this. Part of it is reframing, um, which again, this is a, this is a coping mechanism. It's not something that, you know, I, I, I would have hoped I have to do, but I always think about the people that didn't make it. Mm. So when I walk into a space, I know that there's somebody who didn't make it into that space. And so for me, you know, I, I, I think of every day that I have, in this role, you know, as a physician, um, kind of just as a gift. And when you start thinking of all of the privileges that you have, like as a gift, you know, it, it changes the the way you look at pressure. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, I, I do think a lot of that has to do with, you know, having grown up with an extended village um, where you don't take everything for granted. You know, I mean, you name, you know, a public program, I've been on it, free lunch, you know, WIC, um, Medicaid, like all of those things, you know, some people, you know, if you, depending on their political background, they would say, oh, well, you didn't earn those things. And I'm like, well, you know, at the, at the end of the day, like the reason I'm able to take care of all of these kids that come in, no matter their background, whether, you know, socioeconomic, you know, racial, uh, citizenship is because people poured into me. And so it is, it is almost like a, I mean, part of it is a sense of duty, but it's also a sense of pride um, that, you know, even when I'm uncomfortable, you know, I have a very vivid memory of, of phases where people, you know, who didn't even know me um, went out of their way. I mean, actually, I have a story. I remember once I was at Westminster, I was supposed to go to um, Europe and I didn't have all the funding. Somebody, they called me out of class and I thought I was in trouble and the headmaster, you know, presented me with a check. And like, to this day, I don't know who wrote it, um, but somebody saw something in me and they were like, this kid, you know, I just won like the national Latin exam award, like a gold, you know, medal or something. Um, and they said, you know, I want to sponsor you. And I can't, they weren't allowed to disclose who they were. Um, and so in cumulative, I've, you know, probably had over a million dollars in scholarship funds. Um, I also been at a lot of school <laughs> so that, that <laughs> it racks up. Um, but that's kind of been my story. I've really been, you know, lifted, you know, by, by the kindness of others. And so a lot of it is, is reframing. Um, I think the other piece is also my faith. Um, you know, I grew up 
going to church. My grandmother is um, saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. She's exactly what you would imagine um, a Southern grandma from Atlanta would be. Um, and she's been praying over me since I was a child, like to the point where I think my acne was because I got my head anointed with oil so many <laughs> times. Like it was literally every exam, every test. She's like, oh, okay, come on, baby. We gotta go. We gotta anoint your head. And so I was just like anointed, you know, with, you know, this, you know, olive oil from the kitchen because um, she was praying. Mm-hmm. And so I, I grew up knowing that, you know, God could make a way out of no way. And so it's, it never surprised me, you know, when things would just miraculously happen because, you know, I'm someone who mom hit rock bottom. And then, you know, my mother has been clean for over 20 years. Um, and she is, you know, one of those folks that is thriving. Um, she sells tax software and she has like some of the best rates in the United States. And people have no idea. I'm like, that hustle is born out of, again, necessity um, because she was doing what she had to do. And, you know, when you're a kid who, you know, visits their parent and, you know, halfway homes for much of their childhood and now you see them making six figures because that hustle, you know, was translated once, you know, God saw fit to, to heal her. Mm. Um anything is possible. And so that, that, you know, between, you know, my faith in God and just the, the, the way that my family has always told me, you know, to whom much is given, much is to be expected. Like those two things kind of keep me rooted. And, um, even though I may be physically far away, I'm always rooted, um, in that, that history and that legacy. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I think that that's a very beautiful thing to have such a, um, a strong foundation when it comes to that family dynamic, right? Like many people like could assume where it's just like with the family dynamics that with your parents, it's like, oh, well, maybe she doesn't have the best family dynamics, but that's not necessarily the case. You know, you had your uh, grandmother and your grandfather, you had like cousins and aunts and all those other kind of aspects as well, as well as the people who weren't necessarily family in the sense of they came to all the family gatherings or they were there for every single birthday but like they saw something in you as you said and was like you know this person they need to make sure that they're there for that journey as far as the the angel giver who gave that gift for you to go to that trip in europe like i think that these are all really beautiful foundations of um what a family could look like in your perspective and so like I'm curious around when you got to that point in your life where you decided to choose your own family, right? And like, I guess I'm making a pivot towards your husband and whenever you decided to make that decision, like what has that journey been like as far as um, traveling to all of these different places, like from DC to Seattle to, you know, as we were talking a little bit earlier, moving to Baltimore, how has that been going as far as um, choosing that that life partner who would go into all these other different aspects of your journey with you? So it's 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 interesting now to to reflect on it. Um, I met my husband when I was a baby. Um, so I actually I wasn't even eighteen um, when I started college, and Josh was actually uh, a freshman. Um, and so he likes to say, I wasn't even checking on you because he, I was under age. Um, <laughs> and so I actually met him on a visit. Um, and he was playing like NBA 2K live, like not even paying me any mind. Just looked they I was borrowing like a sleeping bag or something as I came to visit some friends who already went to Georgetown. Um, 
And so he, it, it was also like a very surprising turn of events because my husband's family um, is like, you know, Asian Pacific Islander. Um, and so, you know, that added a whole nother level of complexity because my, my family obviously is, is the family that I know is all African-American. Um, and so, I don't know, I think college was just a lot about exploration. And, and I think he is also one of those folks that is truly um, a partner. Like, I, I mean, my last name is Jinx Chang. He changed his name for me as well. And so that, that type of, that just kind of embodies like the type of person he is because he knew that, you know, my name, you know, my name is carried down from my grandfather. Um, and our, my name will be the last like jinx, um, in our, our, our side of the family. And it meant a lot to me to carry my grandfather's name after he passed. And so he was like, okay, well, we'll, we'll leave your name, you know, first and I'll adopt it too. So that our children will carry on my grandfather's name. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, it's, it's hard. Cause especially in a lot of, you know, black families where there's, you know, the, the last name it, it is often, it's like a grandparent who's carrying it you know, that you're pulling it from. Um, he understood that not even having come from, you know, a black family, but he knew what it meant to me. Um, and so I, I remember discussing, you know, this like fairly early in our relationship because I was like, I'm not changing my name. I'm going to medical school. I work hard for that. And he was like, always just supportive. And I mean, that's just one example. But, um, when I decided I wanted to go to medical school, when I, when we were dating, you know, when I was a freshman, um, he, I said, I used to say things like that, you know, later on. And, and a lot of the people didn't believe me. Um, like I was in a student career experience program through the Pentagon. And so I had a government job lined up for me. Like I was a GS seven by the time I was a junior. Mm. And, and when I was like, Oh, I'm going to medical school. Like they didn't know science camp Samar. They didn't, they didn't <laughs> know any of that. They just knew that I, I went to the Pentagon and I came back and the language of, you know, briefing books. And, you know, I worked in the sec office. Um, and with the press secretary, um, I had, you know, all of my agendas had action items at the bottom because that's how the Pentagon briefings were prepared. Everybody just knew I was going into into civil service, whether it was, you know, through DOD or politics or something. And then I swerved and said medical school and nobody believed me except for Josh because he was like, oh, no, like she, she, she's serious. And so once I got into Duke, um, we did long distance. So he was in D.C., um, and luckily, he's more, you know, tech, math oriented. So initially, when we did the long distance, um, yeah, I, I had a feeling that he was going to end up making sacrifices um, because his jobs didn't always entail him being in person, which, you know, fast forward to the pandemic um, has been, you know, kind of accelerated in a sense. Um, but he's just always been a writer. Like, I don't even know <laughs> how else to describe him. Um and I think that that is important if you're going to be a female physician, because there are not that many like men that are willing to follow women around the country um, in the same way, you know, that women follow men. And, you know, maybe that will change in some generations. But I think he knew, you know, that this was my passion um, and that honestly, I feel like the, my community had poured into me so much that I was like kind of. I felt like I was carrying, you know, all of Southwest Atlanta with me every step along the way when I went to Harvard, you know, when I went to Duke, when I went to Georgetown. Um, And those things were important to him, too, um, because it was bigger than me. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you have a partner that sees your passion and takes it on as their own, um, it changes the, the difficult conversations. 
um, about like, oh, you know, I got into, you know, a West Coast program and an East Coast program for medical school. You know, what are we going to do? His his answer has always been what is going to serve you best. So what is going to serve you best is going to serve us best. Um, so even now, you know, we're going to Hopkins for, for my fellowship, um, which is the next phase of, of training. There's always another phase of training in medicine. Um, and his family is in Maryland. So finally, we kind of get to go back um, to where he's, he's his support networks are rooted. Um, and he'll actually be back and forth to Expedia headquarters um, here in Seattle. And we're, you know, we're like a modern couple. We're like, OK, there's going to be a little bit of bicoastal. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we've made it, what is it, like 15 years now of us bouncing around, you know, trying to kind of, you know, do justice to this, you know, this passion, this dream of mine um, to become a physician and, and, you know, serve. And so I think, you know, I I think between, you know, the just in, innate like aspects of his character and also, you know, we're both Christian. Um, I think we kind of speak the same language. Um, even if we don't come, if you look at us, you wouldn't be like, what, how, how do they get together? Um, but his family upbringing also had a lot to do with it. They, his mom is a very strong working mom. And I, I owe a lot to, to Mama Chang um, as well, because it takes a strong woman to raise a son like that. Um, so I want to make sure I give her some credit for that as well. <clears throat> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, especially like, you know, overall, this I've been hearing like this kind of theme of like pursuit of excellence. And like we talked a lot about like family and like the whole important aspect of having like that support of not only just the family that you're born with, but also the family that you choose. That same aspect around like how community can have that same type of support overarchingly. And like it really sounds like, you know, when it comes to to self, like through your entire journey, it sounds like you've been really adamant towards knowing who you are and like knowing what you're aiming for. And so like, I'm kind of curious if you can talk on a little bit as you're going into this next phase of training into your fellowship, like what is that overarching aim that you're trying to do when it comes to serving? Cause like, I heard you talk about whenever you were in Ethiopia and like, you know, trying to teach the students, um, English and you're like how can I teach these students English whenever like the biggest concern that they have is like their own hunger and like the impact that that had onto you and like being that kind of advocate within like the medical field and being that kind of uh, provider like what is um, the I guess you could say the um, disparities that you're aiming for or the goal that you're trying to accomplish through your uh, through your acts of service so i don't know i think the word like mission driven kind of always comes to mind um whenever i think about what moves i'm going to make um what is going to set me up to have the largest impact and i, and I think that's part of the reason why I, I got a public health degree um because i kind of see the world you know through this population health lens um and that was from again barbara and richard like my grandfather he you know would travel into the prisons across the state and track STI trends. Um, that was his job. And so when you see that, you know, day in and day out, like he had these legal pads that I'll never forget, these yellow legal pads that he would fill with all of these reports. And I would kind of edit them with little commas and, you know, those type of things. And, <laughs> you know, he would always make it very clear that, you know, all of all, everything that you have, um, 
everything, every gift that you have is borrowed from God. Mm. You know, all of these borrowed gifts that you have are not yours. You know, we're only here for a finite amount of time. And so I, I think that, you know, seeing what it looks like to be, you know, mission driven, you know, whether it's taking care of your, you know, grandkids or taking care of, you know, those people that have been literally like thrown away by society. Um, like that's what I grew up seeing. And so, you know, now part of the reason I, it's kind of a full circle um, journey is that my fellowship at Hopkins will be in addiction medicine um, and adolescent medicine. And so it's a combination of, you know, those issues that that a lot of people want to dismiss um, because it's easy to blame, you know, people and not systems mm. um, that that I, I never had the luxury of doing that. Because if, you know, people who have made mistakes, you know, got to be deleted, like I wouldn't have any family left because um, we all make mistakes. And I think for me, giving people grace um, means, you know, looking beyond just, you know, one one decision. Um, so ad- adolescent medicine, which is not as familiar to a lot of folks, kind of encompasses, you know, reproductive health, gender, um, gender care, um, things, you know, uh, there's to a certain aspect like incarcerated youth so juvenile justice issues anything that's kind of unique to teens um, eating disorders um, and so I, I think the reason I flocked to you know the addiction medicine piece is probably more obvious but for adolescent you know we we are very um, prone in this country to you know basically judge somebody some someone based on you know, one of the worst decisions that they've ever made you know so the kids that i work with now um as an attending i work at a juvenile detention center for kids who committed felony crimes um and society has said that you know the mistakes that they've made you know merit you know removal you know it's like we got to figure this out but it's it's not too late you know the way that it's done you know, at Echo Glen, like we have, you know, canine training teams and golf clinics. Like it's really meant to be rehabilitation um, and not punishment. And I almost wish, you know, when I, if I were an adult doctor, I could carry the same level of understanding that we have for young people that are still figuring out, you know, how to navigate their, their lives um, later on. But that's not really how we function. It's like, to me, adolescence is like that last phase where people still don't haven't given up on you. And again, my life has been, you know, one phase after the other, people stepping in and saying, oh, like, you are worthy, you are enough, you deserve this. Um, and not everybody gets that. Mm. You know, I, I mean, a lot of my siblings, you know, ended up having, you know, my nieces and nephews fairly young. And I think having seen that up front, I feel like I'm, you know, uniquely positioned to kind of advocate for people who, wouldn't otherwise have an advocate. So I kind of try to put my place myself in places and spaces where I, my, you know, story, whether I tell it out loud or not, because most of my patients don't necessarily know my background, um, where I can be that, you know, the person stepping in and kind of advocating in a way that others have done for me. Yeah, no, that's, that's really beautiful. I really, you know, this entire time I've been listening to you and like um, talk about how you've been, reframing as far as like that coping mechanism as far as like um this whole concept of having a gift and like um we're only like you said we're only on this earth for a finite time so why not just share that gift that we have because you know to hold it to yourself is kind of selfishly and like at the same time 
like if you don't share that gift then it's just like um wasted potential for lack of a better term and like i think it's just really beautiful around how you you um your perspective on life and like how you go about and even just always coming out with the the strongest energy that you possibly can when it comes to whether it's your personal life your professional life or anything like it's it's really and truthfully admirable and i just want to to just thank you for just sharing your perspective on that today yeah i mean i i i can't phrase it like it's hard for me to put into words just really like those seeds that were planted, which is again why I was attracted to working with young people. Because mm. um, if you plant seeds in a child early enough, you know they they're indestructible. Like I don't, I, I I genuinely think, you know that the 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 village that that brought me here, like they will they will never, you, you they're irreplaceable, and this is part of the reason why whenever people have you know, nuclear families. I was never fully jealous because I was like, oh, well, you have one mom. I have like five. <laughs> <laughs> I have my auntie who grew up with me, you know, was in my house along with my uncle. We never had less than eight people in my house at any given point in time. Mm -hmm. And so for some people, they were like, oh, that sounds like chaotic. And I'm like, well, when you're a kid, it just sounds fun, yeah. <laughs> right? Like I can, you know, steal people's shoes, play dress up, you know, like kids are so resilient. You put them in any situation, and, you know, they will make do, you know, I see it in the hospital all the time. I see kids in our cancer unit with NG tubes taking dance breaks on their bed. Uh, kids who can't even swallow and eat, but will find joy in, you know, really small moments. Um, and, I, and I'm just so grateful to them. I think that's the other thing that has kept me going um, because I get to work with, with children who remind me every day that every second, every moment, you know, every minute, every hour is a gift. Um, because their lives may be shorter than even mine, um, which doesn't seem, you know, fair, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Um, so you just have to, you know, live every moment um, as you can and write things down. Um, that's another thing that I learned. We during COVID, it's just it's made a lot of there's been a lot of time for reflection. Um, and I think, you know, our family in particular, I always say that I'm in constant contact with them. We have these family prayer calls every Sunday that started during the pandemic. And I've been the recorder. So I've written down all of our prayer requests and all of our praise reports from the beginning. So I have two years worth now. Mm -hmm. And because there's so many of my, you know, siblings and aunts and, you know, my mom and grandma, like there's generally, you know, no less than, like I said, like eight or so people. Um, and I almost feel like the historian <laughs> for the family. Yeah. Um, this is all on iPhone notes. So you can't really, it's not like written or anything. Um, but one day I really plan to compile them because every once in a while I'll look back and I'll say, oh, well, you know, back in, you know, April of 2020, like this was what was going on. And certain, you know, dreams have been manifested in that time. So like you started by asking, how was this last week? My sister, you know, just Raina just graduated from Miami. And, you know, they said, oh, you get five tickets. We rolled up with like 20 people. <laughs> That's just how we are. <laughs> Yeah, um, we got there two hours early, you know, Mr. Randy helped us, get, you know, finesse the situation. Um, and so it was just it was it was a beautiful thing because not every one of my students has had such a, you know, a, 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 the same route that I've had. And so, you know, all of the nieces and nephews there, two of my other sisters um, who came before Raina were there with all of their kids. And, you know, everybody's in tears. 
right? Because this means so much to our family in a way that, you know, none of the other families necessarily knew. Um, but we had chance and, you know, I feel like when, I, you know, when you're from, you know, a marginalized community, we take nothing for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, every, every step across that stage, my grandmother, you know, she was sitting there crying just like the rest of us because she, you know, she couldn't even go to a predominantly white institution. Um, she, my mother went to Spelman. Um, my godmother went to Spelman. Everybody went to HBCU. So she's very quick to remind us that we are, you know, standing on the, you know, the shoulders of everyone who went, you know, before us, herself included. Um, and so I think pausing for reflection and, you know, writing things down and having, especially when elders tell it, say it, when she says something good, I pull up my notes immediately and write it down. Um, Cause who knows, you know, how long we're going to have her. So I just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the type of person to do a journal per se, but I definitely like you like little quick notes. Um, and I feel like medicine got me into doing that too. Cause you, you have, you know, these documentation needs and I'm recording people's stories every day. Like whenever I try to, whenever I get bogged down by charting, I'm like, you know what? I'm recording a, a part of this person's life and they're going through something. And I'm kind of the historian for that experience for them in a way. Yeah. And so that's another, I think that COVID has taught me that. Oh, man, I, I, I really appreciate um, this time that I've had with you today. You know, you've always been a, a really great friend. And though we don't always get a chance to talk um, as much as I would like, like I always enjoy the times that I do get to chat with you. You you always fill my cup and I just want to tell you that I appreciate you and I, I appreciate your time today. But before I, I let you go, um, there are some lightning questions that I like to do on every episode. And so we'll go through those and then I'll let you get on to the rest of your day. How's that sound? Sure. All right. Um, what's your favorite relaxation or self-care activity? Um, I would have to say dance. Um, there's nothing like just kind of having some music on. Um that you love and just you know going crazy um, that's kind of <laughs> that's how to kind of my release nice i love it um best book recommendation um so i am reading a book right now that one of my residents actually recommended um called not in my backyard on the history of baltimore and like mm. redlining and segregation um and so i kind of feel like if i'm going to move to a place i need to know the history of the place um so that that book has been really eye-opening for me yeah okay i love that and one person that you want to thank for your journey thus far um well i mean i have to say barbara because i know she's going to listen to this and all of the sword <laughs> of the lord church is probably going to hear about it um but yeah my grandmother that's my heart um and anybody who knows me has heard about her um just because she's she's the reason i'm here um and i'm so grateful to her for that yeah well that sounds great well samara like as always i really appreciate your time and i hope you have a great rest of your day same to you this has been another episode of don't be coy with uncle lou As always, I'd like to thank this episode's guest for a great conversation, as well as thank you, the listener, for joining in. Whether you're a first-time listener or a regular, I always appreciate your support. If you liked today's episode and ever want to listen to more, subscribe to our show 
on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And to join our community and access future bonus content, be sure to visit dbkpodcast.com.